Well, congregation, this morning, I would like to, uh, we had a few sermons on the book of Obadiah, and uh, I thought this morning to preach a more topical sermon. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't my normal practice. If I do this too much, you should probably complain to the elders and tell them to tell the pastor to get back to preaching expositionally through the scriptures. But occasionally, it's, uh, it's good to, to consider a topic and to bring it to the light of God's word. And that's what I would like to do with the whole topic of singing. And to think about our worship in this regard. Singing. Now we had in the chapter before us the first song, at least the first song that is in the in the that you would come to if you read through scripture, of Moses singing this song after they came, after they were delivered out of the Red Sea, delivered from the Egyptians, the, the Egyptians being thrown into the Red Sea and destroyed. But it's not actually the first song in, in Scripture. It's not the first song in terms of time. The first song in terms of time is Job 38 and verse 7. Job 38 and verse 7. And so children, here is the very first song that was ever sung in the history of time. Because it was sung at the very beginning of time. So Job 38 and verse 7 tells us, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So Job there is speaking about creation. And when God created the world, and when he stepped back on that last day and, and pronounced it all to be very good, then Job tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that all the morning stars, the angels, and here even the stars are said, uh, by way of personification, said to have sung and shouted for joy at what God had done. My friends, that brings me then to this first point, God's people, a singing people. That is everywhere given to us in Scripture, that the children of God are a singing people. Moses and the children of Israel and Miriam sing in Exodus chapter 15, as we saw. The very first moments of creation, when God created the world, there was singing. We know that in the Scriptures we have the whole book of the Psalms, Right, which is specifically poetry that is meant and that was sung in, in biblical worship. We see a vast variety of instruments in the Bible used to uh, accompany singing of all kinds. Uh, you can read many of them in the, in the, uh, in the Psalms. Uh, we see in the, in the worship of the temple a highly organized singing, choirs. Uh, in, in the book of Chronicles, you can read about the, the men who led the, the singing of the choirs. And so there's a great deal of singing that takes place in the Bible. In James 5, to move to the New Testament, in James chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Is anyone, is anyone merry? That's what I remember from uh, when I was a youngster, but the, this translation is different. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. In James 5, verse 13, is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Would you take your Bible, though, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 to show you something that perhaps you hadn't noticed before? In Hebrews chapter 2, the striking comment that Jesus Christ sings. In fact, he sings along with the congregation. Look with me at Hebrews 2 
and verse 12. Now, in this particular passage, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 22, but he says, Hebrews 2 and verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, the question then is, who is the I here? So we have to back up. Back up to verse 10. Back up to verse 10. So Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that's Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. So that's, that's clearly Jesus, right? In bringing many sons to glory. That's, that's the mission of Jesus, to bring God's chosen sons to glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies, that's God the Father, and those who are sanctified, uh, he, he who sanctifies is Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Now again, in this particular passage of Scripture, the author is making a different point, right? But continue with me. For which reason he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to be called brothers with all the rest of the people in the congregation. And then to prove that point, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Now that's why the author quotes this, because it says, my brethren. So Jesus calls all the other saints in the church, in the assembly, my brethren. That's the point of the apostle here, or the, the author of, uh, of Hebrews, I mean. And that's not my point now. But then notice it says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That means, my friends, that Jesus Christ, in a way that is clearly somewhat mysterious to us, sings the praises of God along with his brethren and sisters in the congregation. Jesus Christ is a singing Savior. He sings. So we have it in the Old Testament. We have it in the New Testament. God's people are a singing people. And finally, heaven is a place of singing. In Revelation 15, verse 3. And I hardly need to quote this because you know this is repeated again and again in the book of Revelation. But in Revelation 15, verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. So God's people a singing people from the moment of creation on into the never-ending ages of eternity. They are a singing people. I trust I've, I've made that point now to you, dear friends. I move on then to think about a song. What is a song? <clears throat> what is a song? Well, when we think about the psychology of a human person, Oftentimes, it's, it's divided up into these three categories that you have listed there. Thinking, acting, and feeling. That the, the soul of the human person, right? The body is that material part, right? But every person is also a soul. There's an immaterial part to every person that thinks, right? We, our mind, our intellect, we assess things. We contemplate and think about different things. We understand what we read, what we study. But there's also a acting, right? Our souls act. They, they make choices. They make decisions. And there is the feeling. There are emotions. Feelings that can be worked up very high. We can be very sad. We can be very happy. We can be very angry. Right? So along with these decisions that we make, 
right? We, can, we have these feelings that accompany it. A human person is a thinking, acting, and feeling person. Now let's think about a song. I can say to every one of you this morning from the pulpit, I can say, God is great. God is great. And, and your mind hears that, and you understand it. Probably there's even some emotion, right? God is great, and, and you, we can think of what that means to us in our own life. But now I can go one step f- further, and I can put those words to poetry. I can make the words rhyme. I can say something like this. He has ever turned my sorrow into gladness on the morrow. He has ever turned my sorrow into gladness on the morrow. Now you hear the poetry there, right? And the poetry serves no other purpose. It doesn't do anything further for your mind, right, in terms of understanding. It still means God is great. But now the poetry brings feeling along with it. It's, it's, a, it's a work of beauty, isn't it? It's artistic. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, the work of an artist there in the sense that it's now poetry. But now, my friends, I can go one step further and I can put that to music and I can harmonize that, right? And now that takes it even a step farther because now not only do we see the beauty of the poetry, but we hear, now we engage our hearing and we hear the beauty of the harmony. Now again, our mind hasn't been instructed any farther than when we said God is great. But now our emotions are brought into play on it because of the beauty of it. And not just the beauty of it, but now our emotions are brought into play because we can think back. Now, he has ever turned my sorrow into gladness on the morrow is the last lines of a, of a, a song we used to sing in church all the time. It's in our own hymn book as well, I think. And we often used to sing that. And so for me, that brings back all kinds of memories of singing in church and at home and, and such. And you would have, if, I had, if I asked you right now, you could come up with something. You could bring up a line. You know, I was, I was extremely depressed one day. I was thinking about this, or I was very sad, right? And this hymn came to my mind, and I sang it, and I was encouraged, right? Now, you're never going to forget that hymn, right? Those words are going to be in your mind. And when you hear it, you're going to be rejoicing that God gave you that. Maybe the, the song that you sung at your father's funeral or your mother's funeral or, or whatever it may be, right? In some moment in your life, these songs come to you, and they bring emotions. So a song, if you're a note-taking kind of person, circle the word feeling there because songs aren't really about our thinking. They're not really about our acting. They're mostly about our feelings. And it shows, dear friends, how God... uh, Let's see. uh, God understands that we are thinking, acting, and feeling people, that we have emotions, and that God has made provision for that in the worship of his of his holy name. I do not just stand here every Sunday and just take the Bible and read it to you and then we all go home. No, God has said, uh, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. And throughout the history of, of time itself, we see that God's people are a singing people and that God has made provision. He's, he's un- he understands that we're a feeling people. Now, we, dr- we stop short of saying that feelings are primary that feelings are the most important thing in worship. We don't say that. But that's not to say that they're an unimportant thing in worship, my friends. Again, just because we say they're not the most important thing does not mean that they're not important. And they obviously are important. 
because we spend a great deal of time in this building singing praises to God. We have organs and pianos and musicians who lead us in this kind of worship, for which we're very thankful. And we're very thankful to God that he's given us this great gift of stirring up our feelings and our emotions to rejoice in God. Now, moving on to my third point then. Naturally, as Christians, and naturally as Reformed Christians, we want to know, does God regulate our singing at all? Again, in our churches, we have something called the regulative principle of worship. That means we want our worship to be regulated by the Word of God. And so we turn to Scripture, and we want to know, what does God say about what He expects from us in terms of worshiping? Now, you might be surprised to to, to know that actually there's very little in the Bible uh, about how we should sing. I found two places in the Scripture that speak about our singing. The first one is Ephesians chapter 5. So Ephesians, right after the book of Galatians, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, uh, so then, uh, I'm in verse 17, Ephesians 5 and verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, or, uh, or weakness, uh, uh, yeah, weakness, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, notice that contrast there. When you're drunk with wine, my friends, you are dissipated. In other words, you are weak. You are controlled by the uh, wine, right? You're, you become drunk. That's what we call being drunk, right? You, you stagger and you, your balance is off. You can't drive well and your reaction times. And, and you, sometimes people get so drunk, they fall right over and they just lay on the ground. They, they, they puke and they vomit. I mean, it's just terrible, right? And drunkenness is a sin condemned in Scripture for that reason because drunkenness takes over your reason, right? You become a fool. But the, the point that Paul's making here is that you're controlled by that wine. And Paul says, don't be controlled by the alcohol, don't be controlled by the, by the intoxic, in being intoxicated, but be filled with or be controlled by the Spirit. In other words, to put it this way, be intoxicated with the Spirit of God. Let Him control you. Let Him be the one that leads you in your life. Now, Paul goes on to speak about Uh, What happens when we are filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now this is such an interesting set of verses here. I notice in the first place that it says, speaking to one another. You might ask yourself, how do we sing to one another, right? Speaking to one another. Some translations will say there in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody. There seems to be something of a a biblical uh, justification there for a choir. Because to speak to one another, that would seem to imply that one part of the congregation is quiet while the other is singing to them, that we would sing to one another. Some people have thought that this was the the practice of kind of antiphonal singing, if you're familiar with that, right? Where, where one, one group, where everybody starts singing, but then in a chorus, one group will sing and then the other group will respond to that. Now again, it's, it's not clear, entirely clear, but clearly there is something there of, of speaking or singing to one another. That we, I, You can't miss that, right, in that text there. By the way, it's repeated again in Colossians chapter 3. You can see those verses there on the outline. 
but speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there seems to be this idea in the first place, my friends, as we, as we look in the word of God for how God, you know, what God expects from us in terms of our singing, that there's this mutual edification, speaking, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well then, what about these three things, these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Is there anything noteworthy there? What are these three things when it says psalms? Now, very likely the word psalms there is referring to the 150 psalms of David that we find in the Old Testament. Hymns and spiritual songs. Let me, let me go to the last one because that's a little easier. Spiritual songs there should be understood as uh, songs of the Spirit, songs produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament worship, remember, my friends, that God worked in a very direct and immediate way so that there would be those times when people would break out and burst forth spontaneously into singing, when the Spirit of God would overwhelm them and they would begin to sing, sometimes not even in, in languages that we can understand, right? They would speak in tongues even while they're singing. And so singing a, a spiritual song here is probably that kind of spontaneous singing that they would burst forth in that kind of singing as inspired by the Spirit. Which leads us to believe then that the word hymns there would be songs that are not so spontaneous, songs that are written out for us, already produced for us, that we can sing from a book or from our memory, whatever it may be. Now that being said, my friends, having done a considerable lot of work this week and looking through all what different people have said about that verse, there is no consensus about what is meant exactly by these, by these terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now there are some very conservative Reformed denominations who say that those are three terms for the Psalms of David, and that we only should sing the Psalms in our worship. You'll perhaps remember the, or recall the term exclusive psalmody, right? An exclusive psalmody teaches, right, that we should only sing the Psalms of David in the church. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about that. Our own church order, I've provided for you on the outline there, that the Psalms are to have the, pre the principal place in our singing, but not exclusively so. At any rate, uh, those terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, probably just three general terms for songs. All right, well, then what about 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15? A very important uh, instruction given us here in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, in this particular section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking about spiritual gifts and especially the use of spiritual gifts in the worship services. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, he speaks, he says, What is the outcome then? So I'm in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, if you go up a few verses to verse 13, notice that Paul is speaking about those who speak in tongues. He says, Therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. My friends, Paul had a, a, a major concern with the Corinthian church, and that is that the worship of the Corinthian church, and indeed of all the churches, be unto edification. The worship needed to be edifying. Now Paul is not against speaking in tongues, but he says, if you're going to speak in tongues, you can do that at home. 
privately. Because it's not unto edification. I can't hear, I'm sorry, I can hear you speaking in tongues, but I can't understand what you are saying. So unto edification means that something must be understood. Furthermore, Paul goes on in verse verse, uh, 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 15, he says, I will pray with the Spirit, which is a good thing, right? Praying with the Spirit. But he says, in public worship services, pray with the mind also. In other words, there needs to be understanding. If you're going to pray in tongues, do that privately or on your, in, in your own home. But in the public worship services, pray with your mind. In other words, in a language that we can understand so we all can be blessed by it. Now, the same thing applies to singing. Paul had just said in, in Colossians, right? Sing psalm, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, that category of spiritual songs, Paul says, if you are moved to sing a song, and the Spirit moves you of a sudden to sing a song, and if it's going to be in another tongue, nobody is edified by it. So let that be on your own, privately. But in the church, we sing, certainly by the Spirit, if the Spirit moves you to sing, but let it be unto edification, in a language that we can understand, so we all can be blessed by it. Now that is a principle that's not just in verse 15, it's actually the whole point of that chapter 15. Uh, chapter 14, in, in Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church, that our worship must be unto edification. So my friends, that means that you need to go back to your notes, right? And you need to circle thinking here as well. Because now Paul is saying that our singing, yes, it's a wonderful gift to our emotions, it lifts us up, but Paul is now saying that there is something of singing with your mind. That it is a thinking exercise as well. We are not to put our brain on the shelf as we sing. But our singing also is to be unto edification. That means, my friends, that something should be understood. That means songs should have content to them. They should be be saying something. I, I would put this next to, think about when you go to a concert. Say you go to an orchestra or an organ concert, or, or, or any kind of concert where there's not uh, singing with lyrics, just music, I mean. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, right? But now, in Paul's definition, that's not unto edification. It's beautiful, it's lovely, it's very entertaining, right? And, and we love those kinds of events. But in Paul's definition, that's not unto edification. It's not bad just because it's not unto edification, okay? But that's, that's the truth of it. But in worship, Paul says, it does need to be unto edification. That our minds also need to be engaged. It's wonderful when our feelings are lifted up. That's a wonderful gift from God. But Paul is saying, I will sing with my mind also. I remember one time in a seminary class, there was two Korean brothers there. And, one of the, uh, and the professor asked one of those brothers to pray. Would he close the class in prayer? Well, this, this brother's English was very poor. You know that. You can understand English a lot quicker, right, than you can actually speak it. And that certainly was this brother's situation. And I told him, I said, you know, if if you want to pray in Korean, go ahead. So he did. He prayed in Korean. Well, of course, we didn't understand a syllable of what he said. It wasn't unto edification, right? It It was good for him. It was edifying for him because he knows Korean. But for the rest of us sitting there, it was just words, just noise in the air, right? And and we couldn't understand anything of what he was saying. Well, So 1 Corinthians 14, 15, God, through the Apostle Paul, teaching us that our singing in church also 
needs to be unto edification. Our minds also needs to be engaged. That's why we read the words. and We let those words enter our minds and we're blessed by them, even as we're blessed by the music as well. Well, let's turn now to some points of application. Here, my friends, singing and values in the first place. Singing and values. Let's recognize what singing is. That because our feelings are engaged, right, and we are, uh, people are led to write music and to sing songs, it, it naturally follows then that we sing about those things that we value the most or that we value highly. I trust that this is a, a something that you'll all agree with, right? We do not sing about uh, things that are just normal to us, right? Everyday things, right? We sing about things that we value highly. Something of what James said there when he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone cheerful? Another one's happy about something. Something has made you happy, stirred you up. You sing about it. We sing about things that we value. But then my second application, because we can also say the reverse. We value things and we sing about them. But the reverse is also true, and this is a very important application to think about this morning, and that is music moves us to value things. Music can cause us to value things. This is the power of music. That music itself is a force within us that brings us to value things higher. That's why music is such an important part of worship. It's such a blessing in worship, because music moves us. We can enter church, and we can enter church with kind of a yeah, it's Sunday morning again. We walk through the door. We sit down. It's very routine. We've done this many times, right? But when that song begins to play, right, suddenly it's as if our souls just lift it up, isn't it? Not always, but sometimes, right? Many times, I hope, I hope this is a, a regular experience with us, that our souls are lifted up and the music itself moves us to value God higher. Maybe when we walked through the door, we weren't thinking so much about it. We weren't thinking about the goodness of God. We just sang, hallelujah, praise Jehovah, O oh, my soul, Jehovah, praise. I will sing the glorious praises of my God through all my days. That might not have been what you were thinking when you came through the door. But when that tune came, and, I, and it's probably a familiar tune to many of us, right? And we associate the praise of God with that tune. It was a dreadful time one time when the, uh, a Dutch person came and visited a church in Canada. He told me this once. And he was horrified because of the song that was being played, the tune, mind you, the tune was this... Uh, it was something like in Dutch, like uh, what we would sing, like Yankee Doodle. In other words, not a religious song at all. And this man was horrified that he, we were singing in church this you know, kind of street song to, uh, to religious because he associated with that tune. Not at all what we associated with it when we sang that tune, right? Sometimes that happens, okay? A tune can be associated with different things. But my point now is that music has a power. It moves us. Now, uh, dear friends, this is something that we need to be conscious of. Because the music that you listen to is, is moving you, it's pushing you in a certain direction. Don't kid yourself now, right? You, people can say, well, I, you know, music does, I just, I just listen to it, it's just, it doesn't do anything to me. That's not true. That is not true because you are a feeling person. You have emotions, you have feelings. And feelings are like gas in your tank. And when those feelings are stirred up, they move you to move in a, different, in a, in a specific direction. And that's why it's so critical the music that you listen to. If you're listening to ungodly music, 
It's going to push you in an ungodly direction. And you can say, well, I, I, just, I just like the tune. I, you know, this guy plays the guitar so well or the, the drums, you know, whatever. No, my friends, music, again, music that has singing to it, music that has lyrics to it, words to it, is pushing you to value that. Now look at this quote from R.C. Sproul. I had never read this quote before. I stumbled on it this week, and I found it very interesting. Uh, the context here is Sproul is writing about these two people, these two men who grew up in just normal middle-class households, went to school, two parents, uh, but they committed murders. Both of them were on, uh, on death row. They had committed awful murders that I can't describe to you. I think one of them killed their parents. But listen to this paragraph. It reminded me as I listened to them, said Sproul, and, and them here is the, the two men that were uh, giving their story, uh, who had committed these awful, awful crimes. He says, it reminded me as I listened to them of Plato, that's the Greek philosopher, Plato, concerns in his own day that people's minds and values were so strongly conditioned by the words and structures of music. Music is a very, very powerful force. And that powerful force can be a force for good or it can be a force for evil. It is not just a matter of indifference or fad. There are different kinds of popular music, and I'm not suggesting that all popular music is destructive and harmful and leads to satanic religion. But extreme forms of anarchist-type themes in music can be extremely destructive to a young person's thinking. In this particular case, the, uh, these two young men told how they had started listening to heavy metal kind of music. You know, the real grinding, heavy kind of stuff. Uh, what Sproul says, extreme forms of anarchist-type themes. All right? And this music moved them. All right? Uh, it wasn't the only force in their life, but it certainly was a force in their life. And moved them away from just a perfectly normal upbringing to commit crimes that were unspeakable in their life. So music is a powerful force. I started by saying that we, we sing about the things that we value, but my friends, let's be deeply conscious and aware of the fact that music also moves us to value things, and it can be a force for evil. The young guys in church are looking at me like, ah, it doesn't do that to me. Well, listen to Sproul. He's an old man. He's gone now. But he had seen many things. And by the way, Sproul had a tremendous appreciation for music. And it's true. And I really want you to think about that today. In what direction is my music moving me? I hasten to my third point, how to improve our singing. This often is a question that comes up in our, in our circles. And here I'm speaking now specifically in our own church here. How can we improve our own singing? Clearly, God expects us to be singing. <clears throat> Our church is, is not a large one, and, and so we don't have a lot of voices, but we still want to think about how can we improve our singing. Well, my friends, my first point here is sing with enthusiasm. It might seem rather obvious that the first point here under improving our singing is that you need to sing. You do have to sing. Unless, unless you're here and you have no voice, then you need to sing. Uh, and I, and I, I guess I, I even feel kind of awkward saying that you, you need to sing. Like, Go back to Exodus 15 with me. right? And imagine Israel as they're sitting on the, on the shore of the Red Sea and they look back and they see that charging through the, the, the channel that God has made in the Red Sea are the hosts of the Egyptians with their chariots and Pharaoh. And they could say to themselves, it's finished, we're done. We've, we've nothing to do with them. 
this is, this is so dramatically captured for us in Exodus 15. <clears throat> so it says in verse 9, Exodus 15 and verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. Do you see them? I mean, again, you've you got to see the picture, my friends. They got their swords up in the air. They're shouting and cheering. We got them now. We're going to take everything they've got. We're going to haul them back to Egypt, right? And they're rejoicing. The battle is theirs. They've already won in their mind. It's a foregone conclusion. You blew with your wind. Verse 10. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Now, my friends, when when the Israelites looked back and saw what God had done for them, you can be sure that they sang. And they sang with enthusiasm. But, my friends, God's done something far greater for you. Now, granted, you can't see it. We can't go and look at the Red Sea and see the bodies of the Egyptians floating there. But, my friends, you were dangling over the pit of hell. You justly deserved eternal condemnation. Do you ever really think sometimes of what that is? Do you ever think of of coming to the end of your life knowing that you're going to drop into hell forever? But God came in his power and his grace. He didn't need to. He was under no obligation to do it. And he plucked you out of the burning. And will we sit in church and mumble and grumble in our singing? Again, I, I just ask you, my friends, between you and the Lord, to take your singing and to put it next to this. Psalm 100, 1 and 2. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Think about that. Is that how we sing? Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Children, I believe these are on your notes, right? Yes. Psalm 100 is shout for joy. In Psalm 95, 1 and 2, will come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. That blank there is joyful to the rock of our salvation. And then the last one, Psalm 150, praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with loud cymbals. Put your singing, my friends, next to that. And if you come to the point in your life where you think, you know, I, my singing is pretty, pretty weak, I'd ask you to go back to the Red Sea with the Israelites and see what God has done for you. And let that stir you up to sing to God with enthusiasm. <clears throat> By the way, some of you might say, well, you know, I do have a voice, but I can't carry a tune. You know, there was an old man, there was an older man in, in, a, in a previous church. He couldn't hold a tune worth, worth anything. But boy, did he sing. He sounded like a chainsaw in the back of the church. But he sang vigorously to the Lord. Why? Because he knew what God had done for him. And he wasn't going to sit there quiet. And so he sang with everything he had. And it didn't sound great. And yet there was something exquisitely beautiful about it, my friends. Exquisitely beautiful. Because you knew that song came straight from his heart. A wonderful thing. The second thing I'll say, my friends, in terms of how to improve our singing, 
is to gain familiarity with our songs. Now, my friends, here in this church, we have an unfortunate situation. And that is that we do not all have the same, we do not all love the same songs. Now, that's just a fact. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just a fact. We do not all love the same songs. We have a, a blue book and a red book with a possible combination of probably over 800 songs. And so some of us like these and, and some of us like those. And then there's some of us who, who don't sing any of those songs in the hymnal. And I, I find it hard, my friends, that as a congregation that we can be blessed by our singing if we don't at least have some familiarity with the songs that we sing. And so my, my challenge to you and my encouragement to you is, you know, in, in some way, shape, or form, we have to gain some familiarity with these songs, or I don't know how you can be blessed by them. P- perhaps that, that's, that may be a reason why some of the, the older folks in, in the church are blessed more by these songs, because they grew up singing them. And I think that there is a, again, I want to tread carefully here, but we don't sing these songs in our homes, do we? Some of us don't sing at all in our homes. I I wish that there was more singing in our homes, my friends. And I wish that there was more singing of, of these songs so that we could gain some familiarity so that when we come into church and we hear these tunes or we sing these words, it's not the first time we've heard them. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's terrible when we have, you know, way more familiarity with the latest country albums and with the top 10 or top 20 charts of whatever genre of music you listen to than we do with the songs that are in, in, in our hymnals. Now, these are the songs that our denomination has given us to sing. They're beautiful songs. I'm having to learn a bunch of them. They're not always so familiar with me. Would you join me in that? Join me in singing these songs together as a family, if you have a family, or singing them with your wife or husband so we can gain some familiarity with them. Otherwise, I fear, my friends, that that the singing in this church is going to be a source of endless uh, uh, controversy in this church. I don't think any of us want to see that. I certainly don't want to see it, and I don't think you do either. But if we can't learn to be blessed by these songs, then it seems like there's going to be constant dissatisfaction with something that is such a precious part of our worship. And so again, I've, I've been in this congregation for a couple of years now, and, and, and increasingly this seems to be something that we could work on. How do you do that? I, I don't know. I, I, I'll leave that with you, but I think it's wonderful that we, we get these hymn books into our homes and sing from them together. Application four really just is, fits in with application three, that for many of us, we need to learn new songs. I counted up in Scripture, my friends, nine times, nine times that Scripture speaks about singing a new song to the Lord. Now, I get it. It's the old songs, the familiar songs, the songs that have spoken to us in the past that are so meaningful to us. But there is a clear scriptural command to learn new songs. And so we do that, and and that should be something that we welcome. I understand that we want to sing the same songs over and over again, 
But again, in terms of what Scripture expects, singing a new song is something that is a very, very biblical concept. We don't give up on the old songs. In fact, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, my friends, the, the very reason why you learn a new song is so that you can learn it so that's not a new song anymore. So that it becomes an old song. It becomes a familiar song. It becomes a song that we love and that we cherish. So that when the pastor announces a song that we're going to sing, we can be blessed by it and moved by it. And in the fifth place, my friends, looking forward. As I started out the sermon saying, heaven is a place of singing. I can't help but think of our two sisters. Judy, Judy Zichterman, my friends, it was so beautiful. She lay there in her casket with her hands folded over the Bible. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. That was a first for me. But what a beautiful, precious sight to see an old saint laying there with her hands over her only hope for life, uh, for the life to come. And then Nell, too, she was here. My friends, they're singing now, right? They're singing. They sing a new song. They sing the old song. I don't know what song. But they're singing a song. The song of Moses and the Lamb. And it's a place where we intend to go someday. Why wouldn't we sing to the Lord here if we hope to sing to him hereafter? And singing, my friends, is just a little foretaste. A little foretaste of heaven of when we stand before his throne and we sing with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our strength to God, our Savior. I pray, my friends, that uh, in this church we could have that kind of enthusiastic singing about songs that we love that prepare us to sing in glory to his praise. May God grant it. Let us pray. Lord, we confess before you this morning that our singing has not often been so enthusiastic It's not often been the kind of singing of those who have been plucked out of hell's fires forever. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a, that you would kindle a fire within our souls that would give vent, that would articulate itself in singing to your holy name. May we sing joyfully, Lord. May we sing with enthusiasm and with grace in our hearts, singing as Paul has taught us with our, as prompted by the Spirit, but also with our mind, being blessed and being edified by the music that we sing. Lord, where there are songs in our books that are unfamiliar to us, Lord, help us to have, uh, help us to have the grace in our hearts to, to learn also those songs, to sing them, to listen to them. And we pray, Lord, that over time, these songs too would grow on us so that we would have a body of songs, a collection of songs that we could sing in this church that would truly bless us, Lord, that would truly lift up our hearts to you so that we could worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness for those times when we may have taken your name in vain by singing with no enthusiasm, singing without reflecting upon all what you have done for us. Lord, the Israelites have sung that you threw horse and rider into the sea. But Lord, for us, we may sing that you've thrown all our sins and our guilt into the depths of the sea. And that as far as east from west is distant, so far have you removed all our sins from us. Lord, please bless us then and help us to meditate and to reflect upon these things to your glory. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, shall we sing? 339. Hark the herald, angels sing. 339. In the blue hymnal, we'll sing the three verses.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.